0: This is Mental Work, the podcast unpacking the challenges faced by early career psychologists. And I'm your host, Dr. Brunwyn Milkins. Hey mental workers, and welcome back to the podcast. Today I am excited because we are talking about gender roles in the psychology profession. This is going to be an excellent episode, and I have two guests for you today. The first guest is Sarah O'Doherty, who is a psychologist and director of AAPI. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Bron. And our second guest is Avril Cook. She is a clinical psychologist and director of Bowdy Psychology. Hi, Avril. Hi there. Did I say Bowdy right? Bodie. Ah, oh, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so close. So close. <laughs> Bodhi Psychology. And they also have a podcast coming up, which is going to contribute to these Australian awesome podcasts about psychology. And it's going to be called Deconstructing Psychology. My understanding so far is that it's going to be Avril and Sarah raging at various things.
1: Exactly. That's basically <laughs> it. Yes.
0: And I just want to take you through what prompted me to think about this episode. There were three things that I noticed early on in my career coming into this. The first thing is that I just noticed a lot of my managers were men, disproportionately male. And I was like, why is that the case? Why are all the people in leadership positions male? The second thing I noticed was that men seemed to be doing all my training and the people who were making livelihoods out of doing training were disproportionately men as well. And then the final thing that caused me to think about gender roles in the psychology profession was that when you think of psychologists... And you see people talk about famous psychologists, they are also disproportionately male. And I reckon if we ask somebody to name a top 10 list of psychologists you have heard of, 90% of them would be male. And we always hear about male theorists. So in my studies, it was always learning these male theorists and the therapies that they had come up with. Then finally, I know I said three things, this is the fourth thing. But finally, it was International Women's Day two days ago, and we had. Statistics recently come out that said it will be 300 years until gender wage equality is reached and that has worsened. It hasn't gotten better. It used to be 200, 250 years. Now it's 300 and I just thought this is nuts. We need to talk about this. So who better to talk about this than Avril and Sarah? We will be unpacking gender roles, talking about leadership and help you with what you can do in your career. Avril and Sarah I really want you to take it away and introduce listeners to some of your own examples that you can speak to in terms
1: of leadership. My leadership experiences have largely been in the health system, but also in the higher education system. So I worked for a number of years in New South Wales Health and um, managed an ICAM service and have been involved in leading various teams within New South Wales Health. Um, And then I also got into leadership in higher education training. Future psychologists, future clinical psychologists, writing programs and running, running programs for clinical um, and five plus uh, one pathways. And I guess through that have been involved in various projects across uh, the profession. Great.
2: And Sarah? So I have been, um, first of all, managing my own private practice for the last maybe eight or nine years. Um, And so my team has both psychologists, uh, we've previously had other allied health clinicians, and we've also got a couple of admin. um, And so I very much play um, a big part of the leadership role there. Um, And then in my past career lives, I've also managed teams in retail and hospitality before I was qualified. And then as a, an early career psychologist, I supported and helped to lead a clinical team in an NGO. So I think that my interest in leadership is really about making sure that we get a diversity in leadership. And I've done a lot of training around things like what makes a good leader and doing leadership coaching and executive coaching. uh, And that's sort of where my passion lies
0: at the moment. Okay. So we have two women here who have bucked the trend. And I say that because I found some statistics that say that in particular in the healthcare industry, the disparity between men and women in leadership positions is really huge. So men account for just 22% of all employees, but for 56% of all managers. So I am so curious, Avril and Sarah, to hear about what you have observed in the psychology profession about leadership and what we can take away.
1: Yeah, it it has absolutely been my experience. I have um, also had the experience of being in health where the entire leadership team were male and have had to encounter, I guess, the experience of pushing up against that in both the education settings and in the hospital systems, which are both quite conservative structures. They're very hierarchical. They're very um, dominated by a particular structure, which... um, definitely favors, favors men and also works off the back of utilizing a casualized female part-time workforce.
2: And my experiences tend to be very similar to both of yours. I think that in our industry, there has always been, in my view, um, male dominated positions who are um, at the top of the organisations, with the majority of the workforce being female dominated. So the people who are actually seeing the clients, the people who are also in things like reception and admin and all of those other sorts of roles, um, support worker roles, etc., they are all um, tending to be female. In education, I remember back to university days, and the majority of academics that I encountered um, were also male um even though again the majority of the student population in psychology courses were female and then when I had a really interesting experience in um when I was interviewing for a private practitioner role at a leading youth mental health service in a particular area um, where the interview panel was all female except for the center manager who was male who asked me a very unethical question about whether or not my duties as a parent would interfere with my hours um, that I would be committing to doing private practice at their service in which case all of the people around the table just sort of looked at him. So it's very much um, a top-down patriarchal structure, I would say, that I've encountered in my career.
0: Yeah, so we know in psychologists that 80% of the psychology workforce in Australia is female and 20% are male. So why is it that we have a patriarchal
1: structure governing us? It is such a big question, probably. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that could be a textbook. <laughs> the option is C, and yes. C is all of the above. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh gosh, where to start? Um, look, Sarah and I talk about these sorts of issues a lot, and I, you know, I think you know, probably between us, we maybe cover we cover so many areas. Of experience, but also per- perceptions and, and and people that we've talked to that have shared their experiences. I mean, one of the big things for me as a systemic therapist um, and someone that teaches in this area is all of the structures that are that surround our society, um, that sort of surround our culture. But then, you know, really directly are actually embedded into the way we train psychology, teach psychology, practice psychology, structure our workplaces in the psychology setting. Um, And all of them are just slightly or majorly ill-fitting, the typical, I mean, not typical, but, you know, the female experience in all the various forms that that may be, uh, including motherhood, parenting, study, uh, promotion, work workflow. There's so many factors. I'm sure Sarah can add a few more as well.
2: Yeah, and I would say that just on top of that, if we look at the structure of workplaces and companies in general, you know, yes, we have a disproportionately higher female workforce than a lot of other industries. But if you look at any industry across Australia or across the world, you're going to still see, what was that statistic? More CEOs named John, Yes. Than female (laughs) Female. CEOs in general, right? Doesn't it make you feel angry? (laughs) Absolutely. So I think that when we look at company structures globally uh, and their adherence to traditional patriarchal male hierarchy, capitalist structures. These sorts of structures tend to be then the go-to model of how any company or organization is set up, mm. which means that there are going to be barriers not just in entry into those structures, but in climbing those structures for women and people of minority genders, but also people of different ethnic or cultural backgrounds who are wanting to succeed and gain positions in those organisations.
0: So is psychology just following this template?
2: I would say that that's... The case, absolutely. And I think that there is a lot of dismantling of this kind of structure that we're attempting to do. You know, we know that a lot of psychologists, the majority of psychologists in Australia, work in private practice and often in solo private practice. So a lot of women in the industry are wanting to work for themselves. And that is absolutely a wonderful goal for us to be able to achieve. And it does take us outside of that normative, traditional, capitalist, patriarchal structure. But there are so many other issues
1: that go along with that, um, which I'm happy to talk about later on. And I'll also add to that, that we've got to remember as well, being able to move into those, that independent business space, we've still come from an education system and a training system, which has been built by men for men. And so a lot of our ideas and the way we've been trained to practice are very much structured around that. So we're not used to being a uh, able to see females in leadership we're not used to being able to see flexible workplaces that support women to to either be in leadership and to work and to have a family or have caring obligations so we bring these ideas from what we've been trained in and how we understand psychology to work then into this into our workspaces and so in a way we've already trimmed our wings through our training experiences and then we're in business and we and we are already limiting ourselves and being limited by the way we've been inoculated.
0: And I feel like not only are we being limited, but it strikes me that, as you said, Sarah, that many women are essentially solo practitioners. They are owners of their own business, which really subverts this norm that women should work for other people. But still we get criticised for that. I think there was a comment a few weeks ago from Professor Ian Hickey, who was saying that we work in cottage industries or something like that. And so it undervalues the the work that we do in managing our own businesses.
2: 100%. You know, would we call a qualified male physiotherapist working in a cottage industry. You know, this this idea of diminishing or dismissing the expertise that psychologists bring to the country, to be able to do the work that we do by calling it something that is, you know, old school, old fashioned, um, you know, what is that, that voodoo witchcraft kind of um, village medicine, uh, you know, we are not, um, we are not something that is, you know, a, an additional um, or an addendum support, we are primary healthcare. And as soon as we start to see ourselves as an essential service and as primary healthcare, then we can start to step into our expertise and be able to acknowledge that, you know what, what I do bring is valuable. And this is where we need to be looking at the kind of language that is being used to describe that that undermines who we
0: are and what we do. So do women need to be invited to the table by men or would you propose another path? Oh. <laughs>
1: A controversial statement. I mean, I mean, let's, let's look at the fucking
0: table, right? Like if the
2: table has been owned by men for so long and it's only men that are sitting to the table, I would say that we need to overthrow the goddamn table and we need to be looking at a whole other system in how we would like to not just perform our work as psychologists, but how we see
1: the future of this profession being structured. Can I tell you two memorable experiences I had. Please do. Around this very issue of being invited to the table or demanding to be at the table. One was a comment by a male psychologist when I became the leader of an an ICAM service, who I thought was a friend, said to me, Avril, but you're too young and girly to be a manager. Oh, unquote. Wow. (laughs) And then another very um, senior psychologist in education um, and academic explaining to me, or maybe mansplaining to me, why there was a male team member who was not following the directions of my leadership, and the team was because I was young and female. And oh that, that could explain why this older gentleman did not wish to take direction from me, did not wish to be part of the team as the rest of the team <laughs> were being. And so in those experiences, I was able to see sort of the double layer of this, which is not only having, having the experience of being uh, challenged and questioned perhaps because I was a young female by my, by my team member but also then having that justified by a very experienced, older senior management as to why this was understandable and why this was a legitimate issue that I might be facing rather than giving support or throwing support behind me. So if they're the people at the table, we have real issues with being invited I, I tend to agree with Sarah in that I think we should, there should be no waiting. There should be no seeking of permission. That is part of the problem is that we've been conditioned to wait and seek for permission uh, before we step into it. But also to take the opportunities when there are, um, when we do have allies, when we do have, I've had amazing male mentors who have given me opportunities and said I will step into this space and taking them. Having that fear Having, you know, all of those doubts or those questions or even not and just freaking doing it. I would also say
2: that, you know, there is this expectation that this is the very, you know, um, lean in Sheryl Sandberg kind of philosophy. There's a, a, a thought that we need to adopt masculine air quotes, traditional masculine characteristics in order to be a good leader or to seek leadership positions or put ourselves forward for leadership positions. And I think that using this kind of template of what leadership ought to look like, you know, when you think of a leader, we think of a gray haired older gentleman in a suit And that kind of person is going to be thought of as being a leader, not necessarily, as Avril was saying, a younger woman uh, who identifies as a person of color, who is, you know, not fitting that traditional archetype. So this idea that we need to be adopting masculine qualities like being Um, overly assertive or even aggressive or demanding of time and space uh, when we really ought to just be entitled to it as equally entitled to it as anybody else that that to me I think is problematic I think that it only acknowledges this single archetype of what a leader looks like and doesn't acknowledge diversity in leadership.
0: I agree I am curious to know like in Avril's example where the person essentially was like, you're experiencing sexism. Guess that's your problem. Um, I'm just wondering whether either of you have been, uh, pressured or felt tempted to adopt those masculine templates for how to be a leader or how, if you haven't, how you've strove forward with your own type of
1: authentic leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Ronan. I, I think for me, I have always felt like a natural leader and the experience I've had socially in my training as a young girl, as a young woman, was that was never noticed. It was never acknowledged. It was always labeled as me being too big for my boots, me wanting to be bossy, me wanting to take charge, where I shouldn't have been, where I should have learned to be a better team player. I should have learned to be quiet. I should have learned to listen to other people. And so for me, that was a very very personal battle to overcome those internalised, I guess, for me, I internalised that those were bad qualities and I should really work on those and push those things down. And even in my psychology training, I very much, I look back now, I demonstrated real leadership qualities. But in the group that I was in where there was a male and there were other females, I was praised for my skill, but not for my leadership. The male was praised for his leadership. And so those things really grated on me until I came to realize that I was a leader and that I needed to embrace that and that was good and that was okay. But then I was met with real challenges around what does that look like because the examples of leadership that I saw were predominantly male and predominantly very hierarchical and in in my experience, Um, particularly in the profession that we're in did not have the degree of consultation, collaboration, uh, perspective taking that I valued. I really value that. And I think that that is a very um, it's a common style of female leaders in comparison to male leaders that that takes place. They've done research on this with, um, you know, leaders in, in various countries and how they've handled the pandemic. And those leadership qualities are difficult to see examples of when you don't have many female leaders around you. And I think there is the temptation then to model oneself on the male leaders that you see around you. And for me, my early leadership experiences, I, I tried on some of those uh, strategies. I tried those um, uh, things that I saw modelled. And for me, I either had bad experiences or it didn't fit internally with the way that I wanted to work. And so for me, it's still an ongoing process. It's, it's been about figuring out what is me, what is leadership that is outside of a you know typical masculine, top-down kind of leadership, and how do I use my therapeutic skills and my understanding around how systems work and how how, how organizations operate to actually influence that um, rather than dictate or rather than being a, in a one-down position. And I think that's where I've kind of landed a little um, in my personal leadership style. When I'm thinking about leadership and leadership characteristics
2: that I've either taken on or that have been either, as Avril was saying, Um, positively recognized or negatively recognized a lot of the male characteristics and qualities that I might've demonstrated um, similar to your experiences, Avril, you know, I've been called loud and bossy and um, bolshy, I think bolshy, feisty. All of these are are words that are, um, you know, applied very um sexistly to women only. Um, and I think that when we look at female leadership, and I'm I'm thinking about Julia Gillard and her research, um, particularly her research into um Hillary Clinton's experiences mm. um in the run-up to um that election that she unfortunately lost. Um not gonna go there too far. <laughs> um, but there's that but there's an issue of likability. All of the qualities that um, men can show uh, as leaders are seen as making a female leader unlikable Mm. and female leaders are supposed to be likable. We have to be nice and we have to be soft and nurturing and gentle and empathetic and all of those sort of um, self-sacrificial qualities and male leaders, when they show These archetypal masculine characteristics. They're seen as strong and assertive and bold, and all of these sorts of things. Whereas if we don't show likability, then we have less of a chance of being seen as effective leaders. And I find this really interesting because as a leader in an organization, I recognize that I don't need to be liked by everybody who exists in that organization but I do need to be understood and respected so that everybody in that organization can be on the same page as me and I think this is a really interesting line to tread because I think that a lot of the time we do want to be liked Um, as humans of course we do want to be liked we do want to fit in and all the rest of it but As a leader, we also have to be making difficult decisions and having difficult conversations and and making the calls not everybody is necessarily going to be in agreement with. So there is that situation of what am I weighing up? Do I want to be an effective leader or do I need to be liked? And how does that
1: impact on how people see me as a leader? yeah, just to follow on from that, I think that there are two things in that, which is to be liked and to be respected. And I think that um, certainly what I see in in male leadership is that that respect can exist regardless of whether or not they're liked. But for women, those two things are inextricably linked. and i I do question whether there is inherent respect there because you can dislike someone and dislike their actions but respect them. And I think that that is where things can get quite tricky because for women, those two things are so closely linked in terms of how people perceive them. So, you know, when Sarah, when you said like, I don't need to be liked, um, I think that's an important quality in in leadership because you're not going to make the best decisions necessarily if you're doing it just to be liked. However, I think people who are being led by a woman feel like they have to like the woman. And I think that that, Absolutely. Is, that is problematic. And it, it also speaks to, I think, something I wanted to mention as well is internalised misogyny that women also have towards female leaders. And that is something that we all have to kind of really challenge and acknowledge in ourselves because we've all been, you know, largely raised in this environment where we do have to question if we have a reaction to a female leader, why is that? Why does it irritate us if she's wearing something of a particular colour? or her voice sounds a particular way. Why are we noticing these things? And we don't notice it with the male leaders. We don't notice their, you know, the way that they look or the way that they speak.
2: I, I don't have an answer to that. What I what I do wanna just add to it though is what I notice in a lot of male leaders is they're allowed to use fear as a weapon. And they're allowed to use fear as a way of garnering respect, getting respect from the people that they are leading. And this idea of being respected through fear personally doesn't sit right with me. It's not a way that I would ever want to lead. Um, But I also think that when you fear a male leader, you can see that as being part of that tone of, yeah, I, I fear and respect them. But if you fear a woman, we often have, again, that internalized misogyny of I see this person as a threat. I see this person as coming to that table and potentially not just sitting at that table, but upending that table. And so if there is a threat, then this is a broader threat to established Patriarchal or capitalistic or whatever systems that a lot of people would see as being unpalatable in a very kind of you know um, mild sense, but actually really detrimental. People would see it as a massive challenge and overthrowing
1: of the system, and people don't want to stand for that. People feel unsettled by that, Sarah. I think that that and they may not necessarily be able to name what that is, so they just they will put it onto the particular individual. They'll say, I don't like their leadership style, or they're a bit too aggressive, or they're not warm or nurturing enough, or or any of these reasons, rather than I'm actually deeply uncomfortable, that this structure that I have been raised in, that I know how to operate within, that I know how to get the breadcrumbs of in this system is now going to be destabilized? How do I function in this destabilized environment? I think that is a fear that underpins a lot of these uh, discomforts. Agreed.
0: Mm. One thing that's really interesting to me off the back of that discussion is I'm trying to bring it back to psychology and I just want your opinions on something that I've observed, which is that in terms of um, people making careers out of training or their various businesses, I've seen lots of men in psychology make successful businesses out of training and they tour the country and they, they write books and they release them. Now I've seen uh, one or two examples come to my mind of very successful women in psychology who have started big businesses, who have been quite independent, who have been quite entrepreneurial. And I've heard significant criticism of those women. And I'm just wondering, but I haven't heard of the men. And, no. I, and I'm wondering, do you think that there's internalized misogynism in psychology?
1: Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. But, but not just
0: not just that. I think that you
2: know we we traditionally think of knowledge as being held and knowledge keepers as being male. We think of knowledge as mm. being held by men. And we think of the wise, wizened old man as being mm. the keeper of the knowledge. And I think that being able to say, "Who is the expert here?" You know, you mentioned um, Professor Hickey earlier, who is not a psychologist; he's a psychiatrist, and very much also a politician. In you know, not the traditional sense, but you know, in all of the uh, um, practical, you sense. know, handshake deals that might happen, absolutely. And he tends to be the spokesperson for mental health. Mm. He doesn't work day to day with clients. He doesn't work day to day in mental health services, but there is definitely a lot of policy stuff and background stuff that he ends up doing, right? And so we think about this person as an expert. This person is touted as an expert across various media and in politics and all the rest of it. And I think that we need to be, Taking this idea of who do we see as being experts and knowledge holders, and we need to be extending that
1: to people who do not fit that type norm. Can can I give you a visual? This visual actually happened, and it is a great example of what we're talking about here is I I've spent a very long time working in eating disorders, which is a great example of all the concepts we're we're discussing today, which is eating disorders predominantly affects women. The workforce that treats that uh, disorder is predominantly women. However, the researchers, the leaders of teams, the trainers are predominantly men. And I went along to, I worked in eating disorders for a very long time, and I went along to an eating disorders training conference, and I was very confronted because the panel in front of me was a wall of middle-aged older men and the organisers running around, collecting things, getting name badges, who had coordinated the entire event were women. And the the way that the knowledge, I looked then back at the audience and saw a sea of women, and I thought, I had the same experience that you described earlier, Bronwyn, is what the hell is going on here and what is being missed if these are the people who are, seem to be the leaders of and and the creators of understanding and knowledge around eating disorders. And what you then get is this massive gap, this complete this this, this uh, distance between what is actually happening on the ground and uh, experiences of the disorder and what we're being told about the disorder. This is
2: so not an isolated case, right? Mm. I got an invitation uh, Tuesday. Um, to my local um MHPN, so Mel- mental health professionals network, um, event. The topic was supporting women's recovery from complex trauma. Um, the main prison's name is Philip. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, this is yeah, just, yeah. and I'm, I haven't responded yet. I'm going to respond, and I'm just thinking. This is someone who has done, yes, a whole lot of research and work within their career, look at women's and also perinatal, so women's and children's mental health, talking to a majority female audience, because I've been to this sort of event before, and It's, again, that top-down patriarchal knowledge holder who is going to educate us little cottage industry
1: professionals. And I don't understand why this keeps happening. To get back to Bronwyn's question, though, I think some of the reasons around that is because research and training has typically not valued uh, lived experience. This is a new buzzword. It's a new sort of movement in mental health. But I think there are still very strongly held beliefs in therapists, clinicians, psychologists, uh, psychiatrists, people in the mental health profession in that end that actually dismiss and look down upon lived experience. And lived experience is not valued in the same way as an RCT trial is valued. So we have then categories of how valuable information is. And if we are not including lived experience, if we're not including um, the information that is gathered from those parts of research, then we're actually not, uh, we're not able to incorporate it into the work we do. So we have this very traditional sense that, like Sarah said, is knowledge is contained within an individual who has done lots of study and is typically looks a particular way. And we seek those people for, for knowledge. But for someone who has a lived experience or a woman or maybe doesn't fit that particular mold, that that knowledge is maybe dismissed by our profession and dismissed by individuals in our profession.
0: I just want to say, it just strikes me of how embedded it is, like the... Uh, the maleness, I guess, because even as you're speaking, Avril, I'm like, well, who decides the research agendas? The people who primarily apply for grants are males because they're male academics. They're the ones who are the lead investigators who approves the grants, predominantly like male-led grant approval teams and who can bypass research, usually a male politician. Um, So it's just so embedded and we can undervalue that lived experience and it just keeps women out.
1: Exactly. And, you know, in that process, in terms of research as well, there is such a very small proportion of females and particularly young females that ever get opportunities for grants, ever get opportunities for that kind of money to be able to do the the research that is actually important because it provides a different way of thinking, a different perspective, and different stories and information as a result. So if we're not getting the money, we're not getting the opportunity for the jobs, we're not getting the research published, then therefore that information never, quote, unquote, I mean, using my fingers, never exists, right? We can then say, well, all the research, all of the RCTs, all of the people with the big grants um, have told us this particular information, but it's kind of rigged from the start, (laughs) But, but then like, think about
2: who the research is being conducted on, mm. right? It's mm. going to be female undergraduate students who are studying psychology, who are the participants in this skewed research. And so all of the research, is done on a female majority population where the people who are conducting the research again are males. So it becomes deeper and deeper into those systems of who is controlling everything and who is calling the shots on this topic.
1: Well, actually add another perspective there, because there's a lot of work um being done on uh, sexism, sexism in research, but particularly medical research, and that does extend to psychological research outside of the university setting. So whilst university settings are majority female undergrad, you know, participants, in studies external to that, there are many, um, many research studies that have only ever included men in medical and psychological research. Mm. And so as a result, we're not actually getting Any female perspective on this so-called disorder, which is meant to encompass men and women and, you know, people who identify in this way, they're excluded. And so these models don't even fit some of our populations. They don't fit the experiences at all.
0: I often talk about that with my clients experiencing endometriosis and I empathize with them and I say like, isn't it hideous how far behind we are in endometriosis treatment purely because it's a female issue and it just hasn't received the amount of funding and attention it absolutely should have. So yeah, it just makes me so sad and angry.
1: Yes, absolutely. And as a result of this, we do have women dying and we do have marginalized populations not receiving treatment and women Mm. um, experiencing a great deal of pain as a result of misdiagnosis and I think you know if we we bring this back to psychology you know an international women's um day this week something that I brought up on my on my um, Instagram account and page is like actually we are part of the problem if we are pathologizing women and diagnosing women when we have excluded The context. And the context is the environment that we live in, the culture that we live in, the expectations placed on women, the pressures, and the world that is built for men. And then we say, well, now you have a diagnosable condition. You're hysterical, you're unstable, you're not able to cope with life, you are ill. And I think that that is something really important for us as a profession to think about is what have we missed when the majority of diagnoses affect women. Majority of mental health difficulties affect women. Why is that? What are we actually doing here?
0: So as we, I do want to come back later to like, how can we escape this? Cause I'm feeling a little bit hopeless and helpless now <laughs> having talked about all of this and I'm like, crap, how do we get out of it? then? it's not as simple as lean in. Um, so there must be other things, but I just want to speak to um, a few topics before we get there. Um, Sarah, off air, we were talking about this idea of the myth of flexibility. And I just wondered if you could speak to that in terms of gender roles in the profession and how that might affect psychologists.
2: For sure. So... We think about this whole idea of the workday and that really kind of corporate structured nine to five ideal of a workday, and that whole idea of you know the the thirty eight hour work week and the eight hour workday, while it might you know seem good in theory, it's very much built on this traditionally masculine way of working that had all of those structures incorporated for the male, let's call him a breadwinner, to be able to be working those hours and to then be providing for his family. Um, Annabelle Crabb, in her book, The Wife Drought, talks a lot about, you know, the if the man was able to complete his job in that eight-hour a day, 38 hours a week job, he would have dinner waiting on the table because the woman, the female partner, the wife would be able to complete that and do that for him and her and their children. There would be, you know, all of the domestic duties completed and the carer and parenting duties completed. And we Living in today with, you know, cost of living crisis and all the rest of it, and I live in Sydney, and unless you have two very, very high income people living in a household, you basically can't buy a house here. It is incredibly difficult to not have two people working. So what happens when you do need to complete all of the household and parenting responsibilities, but we're working and we're working within this carer environment. We're working in a healthcare profession and we're still needing to drop off the kids and pick up the kids and do after school sports classes and before school, music classes and all the rest of it, right? So at some point, and I've had multiple discussions with females, female psychologists in particular, in regards to this topic, women still have to do the majority of school pickups and drop-offs and carting the kids around and doctor's appointments and specialist appointments and all of the other things that might be to do with child caring responsibilities and domestic stuff, right? So as a work psychologists, we often are doing things like, yes, going into our own solo private practice or working in a private practice setting as the majority of psychologists do in Australia, but we're requesting shorter hours. You know, can I work 10 till two and still be able to do drop-off and pick-up? Can I work a couple of different shifts through the week and still see the number of clients I need to in order to pay myself a living wage, but still work my hours around all of my other responsibilities, right? So we have this idea that going into psychology and working in a private practice, perhaps working in a contractor model, is going to give us not just the cash that we need, but the time flexibility that we need as well. And when does this happen, right? We are still subjugating ourselves we are still putting our needs last we are still prioritizing the needs of everybody else our kids our partners our whoever we're prioritizing all of their needs and deprioritizing our own we've studied a bloody long time and worked a really heck of a long time to work up to where we are now and we are still having to deprioritize our careers in order to make sure that our partners can work a nine to five. I'm sorry, that's just not how it's meant to work. So this idea of flexibility that we are sold in working in private practice doesn't actually get us to where we want to be. If we
1: are aspiring to be leaders. I think the other side of that as well is that our structure doesn't support men to step up and take on those roles as well. And, you know, there are Um, there's, there's research, but there's also anecdotal stories that I I hear a lot and read a lot about, which is men wanting to be more present fathers in their children's lives, but also hitting up against that sexism in the workplace where they're not approved leave. We still don't have universal, um, you know, very long paternity leave, um, provided to, to, to fathers. There is, uh, pressure for the man despite being um, a parent to be in the office and working the same kind of hours. And then we get this kind of unequal pressure and this unequal situation where it's slightly easier for the woman to ask for it. It's kind of expected for the woman to ask for it. It's kind of expected that their career will take a back seat and it's not expected um, for the man. And so then you get this skewing despite what individuals and families decide, these pressures from the outside. And that then just leans into more of this uh, disparity. I'll give you an example as well as when I was working full-time and I was not technically the full-time carer of my children in, in the traditional sense is I still got every bloody medical phone call for bookings, for payment, for picking up of the kids if someone was running late. I got every single contact around that and that was despite you were the I was the default parent and that was despite being very clear about who the primary parent was meant to be. So look there are so many of these factors that lead us down these paths and make it make it difficult for both parties in the equation to do things differently.
2: This is where you know we are very much hitting up against the systems here and it is far more socially acceptable as you said for a woman to be asking for leave and to be doing that flexible hour situation. But it also depends on the kind of job. I think that, you know, we tend to want to pride ourselves in a healthcare profession to be able to give that kind of empathetic flexibility. And I think that there are traditionally masculine Uh, professions uh, that are no longer traditionally masculine, by the way, things like finance and business and all those sorts of professions where they are less willing to give that sort of empathetic flexibility. So I think that we need to have men, women, and all people, doesn't matter what your gender is, to be pushing for this more so that we can upset and change the structures
1: within those systems. I think also part of that as well is this value that women have placed on them in being carers, providers, nurturers. Because, you know, I definitely had an incredibly supportive um, workplace in terms of the structures that were provided to me in New South Wales Health. But the implicit biases that I received very clearly told me that when I didn't take 12 months off to look after my baby at home, that, that something was the matter, that I, someone was unwell or that I needed to come back financially, and that when Dad was looking after the children, that he was working from home. And these subtle messages that we get from society around like, well, something must be wrong if you are working and something must be wrong or wrong with you, If you are wanting to be in the workplace or wanting to have um, a leadership role when you have young children, those things can feel incredibly bad, really, really bad um, for your self-esteem, for your um, ideology as being a good mother or a good parent. And I think largely in this profession, we do value being carers and being caring. And so that can really push up against those inherent values that we as clinicians may have about ourselves, particularly for women who are wanting to stay in the workforce, who are wanting to move up in leadership, is you're butting against what women are meant to encapsulate to be a successful woman.
2: And and just on that as well, it doesn't matter what a woman does. It doesn't matter what we choose. We're going to get pushback and we're going to get criticized for it. If we want to be a stay-at-home mom, we're going to get criticism. If we want to go back to work after six weeks, like I did with my second kid, then we're going to also get criticism. We can never win. We are within a system and society that is always going to tell us, oh, there must be something wrong. There must be something going on here. All of the choices that you're making are not right.
0: So it's a myth that if we're just a good woman, if we just be submissive and we just be quiet and we be as small as possible and we do what society says we should do, we're going to avoid criticism. But what you're saying, Sarah, is no, don't rely on that. You're never going to avoid the criticism no matter how much of a good woman you try to be.
2: What I'm saying, Bronwyn, is haters going to hate <laughs> and, <laughs> <Baker's gonna> fend- <laughs> and haters going to hate and also internalised misogyny is I think the biggest enemy of all women because we are always going to be critical and judgmental of every single woman around us. And we are always going to engage in social comparison instead of acceptance of difference. And if we're able to accept difference, not better, not worse, not critical, not judgmental, but just different, then we're going to be I think, moving forward, if we were able to do that. Men are allowed to be different. Men are allowed to make different choices to each other. Women, difference is not okay.
0: Mm. So I want to turn to now what listeners can do to navigate this topic. I feel like we have gone through, there's, there's so many like problems. There's so many. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it makes me so angry and upset. Um, I'm curious to hear, about three things that I think we've raised here. The first is, what do we do if we notice negative attitudes towards other women? We see a successful woman launching a training program and we're like, "Mm, should she really be doing that? Maybe she's not as good as she thinks she is. What do we do?
1: I think we have to question ourselves. Where is that coming from? I'm curious about why I had that thought. And to do it in a way as well, like Sarah said, that is non-judgmental towards ourselves because we have all been raised in this environment. It's the air we breathe. You and I and Sarah are gonna be misogynistic in our thoughts. <laughs> it's gonna happen. And that's okay. But what is not okay is just to run with it and to not question it. And so when we have those moments, I catch myself with those moments to go, Ooh, Alva, why did you think that? That's really interesting. Where did that come from? Is that what I choose to believe? Is that how I choose to exist in the world? Is this what I want to teach my daughters? Is this, is this what I want my life for my daughters to look like? And if the answers are no, 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 then I need to do something about that. And I, and I agree with Sarah. It's about our actions. Support. We can notice what comes up for ourselves and act in a way that supports our, you know, fe- fellow, fellow sisters, our fellow um, female kind. And also calling out when, when people are behaving in ways that are misogynistic or drag down women. Calling it out.
0: Yeah, I agree. I'm currently, I've I've been working on it for some time, but I've been challenging my own internalised misogyny because it came yeah. to my attention when I would see other women doing great things and then I would have that negative internal reaction and then my partner would come over and then like be prompted into criticizing this woman. So I, I noticed it. And now what I do is I notice it and I say, good for her. I'm happy for her. I'm glad she's doing that. And then I write her a nice comment. Um, so yeah, so that's how I'm currently trying to challenge it. And I just, I just hate that I've internalized it, but I'm really trying hard to work on it to go against it.
2: On top of this whole idea of noticing when we're doing it, let's also notice that this is a a completely normal response. You know, we always want to be checking on ourselves to see where we are in relation to who we perceive as being our people is. And if we see someone who is doing something that oh my goodness I would love to have done that, then let's just recognize that emotion is jealousy and let's see where I can do something a bit different, right? My instinctual response is support each other. Let's support her because here is someone who has had the guts to step outside of the pack to do something different and she's taking a risk. And I think that one thing that we need to all get better at is having that sense of solidarity and sisterhood. And I think that we need to be supporting each other to do all of the different things. And so this is, again, an acceptance of difference, do all of the different things that might float our different boats. So I think that being able to, before we even start to question ourselves, go, you know what, I'm going to support her. You know what, I'm going to back her that is something that we can do to lift everybody up. And if more people did that, we would also be buoyed with all of that lifting.
1: I think the other thing that I would add that I was searching for for a long time in my life and wish I you know, had found more easily is find a mentor, find a female mentor and find supervision where you either in supervision and your mentoring are looking at how sexism internalized misogyny, um, our, our own limiting thoughts and beliefs about ourselves are affecting the work that we do and the, the way that we exist in the world, because I think it doesn't play much of a, much of a role in typical supervision, but there is definitely a role for that in us looking at the way we treat our clients, diagnose our clients, conduct our own cultural awareness and gender awareness and all of the societal rules around that. If you cannot have those discussions with your supervisor, you need to find a supervisor that can.
2: I just plug something at this point guys. So a couple of years ago before the pandemic, I ran feminist groups for just members of the public and this was an amazing experience. So I did a group called Feminism in Pizza. Which was That's so, so cool. fantastic. <laughs> Ate pizza and talked about feminism, um, and then just as the pandemic hit, um, I'd launched a group called Feminism in the Pub, which I'm hoping to kick off again at some point soon. But what I'm doing in the meantime is I'm in the process of developing um, and rolling out a feminist coaching program. Amazing. So (laughs) this this is specifically for early career psychologists or just any psychologist who wants to be chatting more about how we can incorporate this idea of, and not just the idea of actions within feminism, to our own businesses to our own client work so kind of a little bit of that supervisory aspect but how can we start to take action within the circles that we're in
0: amazing I'm so sick of being told I'm bossy like I feel like oh, your thing oh. would be amazing for that it's like I'm so sick of that internalized voice that's like oh be careful brother you're being too bossy you're being too out there you know and so I'm totally gonna do it Sarah <laughs> I mean, you should. That
2: sounds amazing. I would love to mentor you. It would be so much fun. And I'm going to come along too because it sounds like so much fun. Yeah, have (laughs) you got fun passes, sorry?
0: We'll do (laughs) feminism in the pub. It'll be so fun. Yeah. Um, And this relates to the next question that I wanted to ask, which is, like, I feel really passionate about this, that psychologists are experts in mental health. Um, But I see so many um, female psychologists, so many women, like, we just – Give that expertise away. I feel like we don't own it, and I'm just wondering: what are your tips for early career psychologists who, like, feel a bit like they are still learning? We are still learning. Like, maybe we're not experts in our field yet. But how can we own our knowledge without dismissing it?
1: My first tip would be: if you're giving it away, who is asking you to give it away, and who, or who's taking it from you? Because that certainly was my experience: is I was encouraged to give away my knowledge, makes expertise my labor, my work so that someone else could benefit and it took me a long time to see who was benefiting. And then I went, hang on, hold on a second. I'm keeping this for myself, So that'd be the first question I would ask. If there is someone benefiting from this, why is that? Um, the, the other thing that I would do is start really mapping out what it is that you uniquely contribute because of your experiences So it may not be that you are the expert in social anxiety. Someone else holds that. Great. But what you are the expert in is, for me, being being a woman, being a young woman in leadership, a woman of color, those experiences and whatever it is that my client is coming with, I'm... I am knowledgeable in those domains and what is it that I can uniquely bring and what are, what perspectives can I bring? What research, what what uh, so other structures do I bring to this, um, to the table?
2: I would say that, first of all, we need to acknowledge the fact that we're all going to have imposter complex and mm. this is <laughs> yeah. so normal. You know, I'm harking back to your previous episodes, Bronwyn, about imposter complex and feeling like I don't know anything and I'm questioning myself And I think that we do need to be doing some of those self-reflective practices and going, well, actually, what do I know? What do I know? What have I learned? What do I share? How do my clients benefit from what I do? And can I gain a bit more of that confidence through things like doing some Um, Gratitudes or doing some reassurances, knowing those kinds of things about ourselves and owning it is going to be incredibly helpful. I think also in terms of owning our expertise as psychologists throughout our career, we need to be knowing that we can go into a situation and talk about whatever topic of interest we have for however long. That might take. So, if someone says to you, if you could talk about a topic for five minutes and that topic could be anything of your choosing, I bet that you'll be able to, you know, think of something pretty quick, smart, right? My and first that thought not was be... Sailor Moon. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> That's okay. My first thought is always Buffy, right? <laughs> okay, <good>. <laughs> <laughs> There's always going to be something that we can confidently speak about. And like Avril said, it doesn't have to be about. Uh, social anxiety, for instance, it can be about something that we are passionate about that we give a shit about. And I think knowing how we cultivate our own levels of confidence, we can then start to apply that to our work as well.
0: Mm, I'm just thinking of a specific situation. So I'm sure you're both aware of the research that shows that in um, in say like tutorials or settings where men can speak like meetings, men are more likely to speak up and ask questions. Even though if you ask them outside the room how sure of themselves, they'd be like, oh, I was unsure about that. But women who are unsure will not ask the questions. They would not speak up. Um, how do we how do we counter this? Like how do I how do we get women to to speak up and really own it? How how do they speak up in meetings? Big question.
2: My first thought on that is. When you, I think there was some research around uh, people applying for jobs and men would apply for jobs. They'd see the position description on, you know, a job website and they would apply for the jobs, even if they only met 25 to 35% of the criteria, women needed to meet 80 to 90 minimum percent of the criteria before they felt like they were able to apply and this situation of overestimating their knowledge overestimating your knowledge and that being part of our confidence I think really applies to what you're saying about speaking up in meetings as well we don't have to know stuff in order to speak up. We can have an opinion that we might want to be contributing. We might have a question that nobody else is yet willing to ask and we can ask it. And I think the most important thing here is practice. Even if you feel like you've got nothing to say and nothing to contribute to a situation, put your hands up and ask a question anyway. There is never a dumb question. I bet you any money someone else was thinking about that question or going, "Yeah, that was a really great question when
1: you spoke up." So being able to practice it, that's what's going to get us across the line. For me, the thing that I've noticed in training psychologists and in being a woman and seeing females in the profession is this idea of taking up space. And for women, we are largely trained to take up as little space as possible and if not, to shine the light on our male counterparts. Whereas men are naturally, well, they're given the assumption that they can take up space; that their ideas are important and valid, and we should all listen. So that's great, but what we need to be aware of is our own ideas about, as you know, if you're a woman, is what do we believe about us taking ourselves taking up space? And that idea of taking up space can be simply to wonder, to be curious to ask questions, to be unsure, to have ideas, to make statements. For our male colleagues, it also means creating space and allowing space for that to happen and to not dominate um, forums, to not take up all of that space. For teachers, for facilitators, it actually also means equalising the the airtime that is given to men and women and making sure that that is not disproportionately skewed in in a particular direction the other thing that i will also add to that is it's also about our internal gauge of where we are at and our vulnerabilities and our blind spots so in training you know like big cohorts of psychologists you see pretty quickly the typical cohort of psychologists are anxious perfectionistic and female but there will <laughs> always be <Yes. laughs> there will always be a handful who are overconfident who are perhaps a little too sure of this, their their abilities and that there is a mismatch, right? So the idea is actually when you're in your early career is you do need to have supervision and mentors and, and have people that you trust for feedback. And that's not always going to be people that give you the feedback you want to hear because part of training and part of being a good psychologist is actually going is my internal gauge and my internal gut instincts around this meeting Expectations, meeting safety, meeting kind of the benchmark or not. But if you are the typical psychologist, you can by and large assume that you will not feel confident in your own ideas, that you will be frightened of making a mistake, that you will not want to stick your neck out. And so if we know where we sit in terms of those factors, we can also self correct. So we can go, I tend to think that my opinions are not valid here. So maybe I need to just practice putting my opinions forward. Or I tend to feel like I've made a mistake, but it doesn't always happen that way. So maybe actually my ideas are not correct.
0: So there's a lot of personal work that we can do, but also with the assistance of a mentor and training and really that self reflection, but in collaboration with somebody who can give us that accurate feedback. Right. That's right. Because sometimes we
1: do are overconfident and we do. Yes. Need to pull sometimes that back. we are. Yeah, <laughs> yes. absolutely. I had
2: a brilliant supervisor and mentor when I was a provisional um, and then transitioning into um, gaining my full registration. Um, and I wanted to share the story because I just think it's hilarious. Um, I was working in a very small niche clinical team in an NGO and um, a really new um male colleague who hadn't been there for very long. Um and within six months of being there had approached um our um mutual manager, so my mentor at the time uh for a promotion. And my mentor, our manager called me aside uh within hours, I think, of him <laughs> approaching her and said, Sarah, this guy has just asked for a promotion. You've been here for, you know. I think it was at that point, 18 months or, or two years or something like that. Um, I need you to uh, put in a formal application for uh, a promotion. And it hadn't even occurred to me that this was something that I could do, that this was something that I perhaps was entitled to. And within six months, this uh, new and uh, very plucky and confident, uh, young man, um, decided to, um, basically get the ball rolling for both of us. So in that respect, I thank him for that. And I also am now a lot more aware of the differences and discrepancies in who, and in what circumstances, uh, people are more likely to ask for something that they are actually entitled to or deserve. So I'm very, very encouraging of colleagues and co-workers and people who I mentor to go and actually ask for and have really difficult and uncomfortable conversations with management to be able to progress in their careers in the way that they want to be progressing.
1: That leads me to another you know, another idea that we had been discussing just prior to hitting record was the idea that the way we are trained as psychologists and clinicians is actually perhaps counterproductive to us being leaders and to Mm. us actually advocating for ourselves in the workplace. Because if you think about the values that we imbue, it's, it's like we do no harm, which can mean we don't upset people or we don't cause people to be distressed unnecessarily. We don't distress them. We also have to really manage our ego so that we're not the most dominant person in the room, that we actually have to bring ourselves back and bring out others and their issues. We have to prioritize others' concerns and deprioritize our own. We are caring. We are, you know, all of these things which are valued and, and looked for in the profession. But when that comes to the workplace, if we do those things, and I think women really do these things in the workplace. We take these ideas and these values and we apply it to the, the setting where we don't ask for promotion because we don't want to upset anyone or stress anyone out. And we're thinking about where they're coming from and all the things on their plate. We feel undeserving because we've subjugated our own needs for others. We also don't want to disrupt anyone just to upset the, the apple cart. We don't want to have discomfort or other people feeling uncomfortable. And we want to be caring. So all of these things mean that we don't ask, we don't push, we also don't want to necessarily take ownership for our own ideas and our own um, leadership qualities because that might destabilise things as well. And so I almost think that we need to take uh, it upon ourselves to train ourselves in advocating in the workplace and in also just determining what it is to be a leader and that that might be very, a very different set of skills and values to being a really good clinician.
0: Yeah, no, thank you so much for articulating that difference, Avril. I really appreciate that. Avril and Sarah, I reckon we're going to start wrapping it up, but I reckon we could talk about this forever. (laughs) Um, It's such an interesting topic, and I think we've just uh, hit on the tip of the iceberg. It has been so interesting to hear your own experiences as two leaders in our profession, and thank you so much for bringing your expertise. I did want to ask you if there's any final takeaways or tips that you wanted to leave with our early career listeners.
2: I think that my top tip would be acknowledge the fear and acknowledge the imposter complex and still feel like I have the right to put myself forward and give my opinion and ask that difficult question and have that difficult conversation. I can still do this because my contribution is as valuable as anyone else's and I think that when we start to see ourselves as as deserving or as entitled to sharing space and occupying space as everybody else that is what I want the listeners to take away
1: my top tip would be to put whether you are identify as a man or a woman is to put this in the forefront of your mind in terms of your therapy practice and also your interaction as a professional in the workforce because it is something that affects us all. It's something that affects the profession. And the way that you can do this is by formulating for yourself and also for your clients in a way that acknowledges gender power imbalances and how that plays out in the workforce, how that plays out in mental health, how it plays out in our culture. Because once you start becoming aware of how this plays out, you will see it everywhere. Until then, you won't see it at all. And if we can formulate that, we have responses internally where we say, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't ask that question, or I'm a bad person for doing X, Y, and Z. Instead of just going with that initial feeling, we're actually formulating, is that because of, other factors here is, that, is that, are they Are my own internal stories or is there something societal happening here? Is there a cultural pressure in my workplace? And once we do that, we can step outside of our own fear more easily because we go, hey, it's not just about me.
2: Sorry, right, I have one more thing, one more thing. Yeah, go for it. Support women leaders. Mm. So I think that, so the, the 2023 theme of International Women's Day was embrace equity. So we need to be making really conscious choices to support the sisterhood, support women leadership. If you see training or want to access training in a particular area in psychology, for your therapeutic practice, for yourself, for whatever it might be, choose a female trainer. Mm -hmm. If you want to be choosing a mentor, choose a female or non-binary mentor. If you want to choose a place to work, look for somewhere that has a female or non-binary or diverse leadership team. Mm. Yes. Look for diversity in their leadership team because that's where we're going to then have more of an alignment between the values of the organization and how that organization actually works in practice. If you don't have a match between the representation, because representation matters, in that leadership team, it's not going to filter down through the rest of the organization absolutely okay (laughs) there's
0: so much more to say I know there is I know there is (laughs) I like we could talk about this hours this is officially the longest podcast episode we've had so far um so this has Um, been an enthralling topic I'm so glad that we were able to discuss it and able to um just give some insights into the psychology profession but broader as well and what this says about us as women and leadership positions and what it says about society and the power dynamics that go on here that are so embedded in our structures and how we need to really rally against that and embrace female leaders, like you say, Sarah, and really have a look at our own attitudes and biases that we may have internalised. Thank you so much again, Avril and Sarah, for coming on. I really appreciate your expertise and thank you listeners for listening. That's a wrap and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Mental Work, the podcast for early career psychologists. Podcasts are pretty tough and it's really hard to get the word out there. So there are a couple of things you could do to really help us out. One, leave a review. Second, consider sharing the podcast with your peers. We would love you for it. Thanks for listening
1: and see you next time.